we are, once again, hearing about Jesus in the book of John uh, in the Feast of Tabernacles. All right. So, Jesus has already made some really big claims. Light of the world, the giver of living water, that Jesus is uh, the great I am who has preceded Abraham. Now, as we have to reflect on all of those really big truths, uh, we kind of get some, some proof from John that Jesus is actually who he says that he is. He works a miraculous sign to not just say he is the light of the world, but to demonstrate it, to prove it. And the question is, okay, how will, how will the people faithfully respond to the sign that Jesus is the light of the world? And will they respond faithfully, or they will, will they reveal their true spiritual blindness by denying the light and moving away from him? So there's going to uh, be three things we're going to focus on. First, the sign of Jesus, that he is the light of the world. Second, the blindness of the Pharisees. And third, this kind of irony of blindness and sight, that beyond physical blindness, there is spiritual blindness that has to be overcome by faith. So, Jesus does two things as the light of the world. He both blinds those who are still enslaved to man-made laws and self-righteousness, and he enlightens those who are willing to receive him as the light of the world, put their faith in him, and worship. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you might enlighten our, our hearts that we might see our great Savior, the light of the world. Father, would you help us to see him as he is? Would you unveil uh, and reveal the darkness that, that keeps us from moving towards him, the blindness that keeps us from seeing him truly? Lord, if there is anything that, uh, that masks your glory in our hearts, Father, we ask that you would remove it that we may see you uh, unveiled in all of your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we begin with Jesus uh, working this miraculous sign, and it happens as they are going along the road. Chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, uh, forewarning, we're doing all of chapter 9. There's a lot to it, so you have to stick with me. Uh, I'm not going to read it all ahead of time because it's just a lot to read. So we're going to walk through this story and talk about it. All right, starting with chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? All right, what do we think of this question? This is a terrible question. All right, a terrible question with two terrible, uh, terrible options that reveal bad, simplistic, reductionistic theology. All right, this is real bad. All right, now, there's a, there's a hint of truth here because, all right, where did suffering come from? Suffering ultimately came from sin all the way back to Adam and Eve. And there is a reality that an individual's suffering can be caused by sin. So if you love money and, and cannot control yourself, the suffering of poverty will come upon you. Or the sin of adultery will result in a, a suffering, horrible marriage. But what the Bible has also constantly said is there is not 
a one-to-one relationship between an individual's sin and an individual's suffering. Those two things do not go hand in hand. And when they do, when people do like, kind of go to that theology, it's incredibly painful and oppressive to those who are suffering. That those who are already suffering are then accused of sin that they have not committed. And it's this really brutal thing. And from, from the book of Job all the way through history, this has been one big lie that has been perpetuated, often in the name of the Bible. All right. So, Jesus is constantly coming up against this like simplistic, human-reduced-down distilling of the Bible into something it's not. We're going to see that with the Pharisees later, and Jesus needs to open up the, the disciples' eyes to see more possibilities here than that the parents were sinners, or this guy was a sinner. And so he, he answers them, verse 3, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus gives this third option, which is that the work of God might be put on display. Now, what what a beautiful, redemptive way of seeing someone in their suffering. That instead of seeing, okay, who can we condemn as sinful? Instead, how can God be working here? How can we see redemption and glory displayed even through suffering? And notice there, what what is put on display? The works of God. And as we look at this passage, we see again, work, work, work. The work that has to be done, we must do the works that have to be worked and worked in daytime because the work may not be done at night. All right, we'll come back to that concept of work, but what does he mean? What does he mean that now that it's daytime, this work has to be done? All right, so this is talking about Jesus as the spiritual light of the world. And the reality is that that light of the world is going to leave. The light is going to be crucified. And then the light is going to ascend to the Father. And it will be spiritual night. As long as Jesus, the light of the world, is there, he can do all kinds of works. Namely, he can reveal himself as the light of the world. He can do signs and miracles that prove he is the light of the world. But a day will come when he will leave, and all that will be left are testimonies and first-person accounts. No more works and signs can be done by the light of the world. And so what does Jesus say? He says, you know what, I, I have a great work to do to reveal that I am the light of the world. And so he, he gets to work to do just that, verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said, 
Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. All right. So, he works. And the man went and washed and came back seeing. A great and miraculous work done in a really weird way. All right, why on earth did Jesus spit on the ground, mix it up into mud, and wipe it on this guy's eyes? Now, he doesn't do that other times. Uh, there's a bunch of theories as to why he did this. I think the most intriguing one is perhaps that he did it to be kind of purposefully gross. <laughs> all right, hear me out, hear me out. Uh, all right, so spit. Spit was ceremonially unclean. So if you get spit on you, like, oh, you're, you're now, like, spiritually, morally, you're, you're dirty. And so, it's more ironic that the thing that is supposed to pollute someone actually cleanses them and heals them, because it shouldn't. And it's evidence that the person must be incredibly holy and glorious and powerful if their most disgusting bits can bring about miraculous healing. And we see that Jesus actually, he does that. It's a pattern that he does. Right? He could heal the leper, but beyond just healing him, what does he do? He touches him. And the rules of uncleanness should say that Jesus, Jesus should become unclean, but instead it works to the opposite. No, the, the the purity of Jesus actually passes to the leper, and he's healed. The spit that should make this man unclean now actually makes him healed. And a foreshadowing of the ultimate, blood is not supposed to make someone clean. It cannot bring, it's supposed to make you ritually unclean, but what does the blood of Christ do? It washes us clean from all of our sins that ironic line that we are, we are washed white in the crimson blood of the Lamb. Right? All of the rules are different with Jesus. It's backwards and it's, it's different because He is who He is. Now, it's not just the, the spit and the mud. It's also that He sends them to the pool of Sloam, which John wants us to know is, means sent. Now, a reminder, we've talked about this in the past. You probably don't remember. Uh, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, and they used to go down and, and get water from this very pool and pour it out as a reminder of the water that was given from the rock in the desert, as a reminder of the, the wells of salvation from which God was going to wash his people clean and, and give them living water. And now Jesus is saying, once again, we're confirming that the sent one, the one sent from God, is the one who brings the waters of salvation, who can give living water to people that they may be cleansed and healed and find life. Right? This is super intentional. And the man goes to the, to the place of the one who is sent and he is miraculously healed. Now, we get to see how does everyone respond. And first, we're going to see the, the good and normal response to this miraculous sign 
done by the light of the world. Verse 8. The neighbors, those who'd been, who had seen him before as a beggar, were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Sloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. All right, a couple things we want to notice here. First, first century people weren't just like a superstitious people running around looking for miracles. Right, these people are hard to convince, properly so, because it, it isn't so different. How many of you have seen a, a man born blind healed of his blindness? Would you inherently think that that's going to happen? No. And these people, they, they don't believe it so much so that they, uh, this can't be the same guy. It looks like him. It can't be. Until he, until he himself says, I am the man. They ask the obvious question, how did this happen? And when they hear how, what is the next obvious question? Well, where is he? Who is this person? We want, we are interested in someone who can actually work these miracles. We see it, we believe you, and now we want to know something more about this man named Jesus. That is a normal response to seeing the miracles. I, I, want to, I want to meet him myself. I want to move towards him. I want to get to know him. Maybe there's more to this guy who's doing these amazing works. That is a faithful response to the evidence before them. Now we're going to see an unfaithful response to the evidence put before him, the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. The villains of the story now come into the picture. How did they respond? Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. All right, so they ask the same first question. Right, how, how did this happen? How were your eyes opened? But after they get their response, they have a very different, a very different reaction. They don't want to know where is this Jesus, what do they say? He is a sinner, for he has not kept the Sabbath. Right. It was, in fact, the Sabbath when Jesus mixed mud and put it on this guy's eyes. Now, what's the problem with that? All right, first, there was a law against healing on the Sabbath because that was inevitably a work. 
You could maybe save someone's life, but no, you can't, you can't heal on the Sabbath. All right, but even worse, there were all kinds of rules, 31 different verbs of the things you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath and quantified it themselves as work. All right, things like uh, carrying or gathering or, in this case, grinding. All right, just some, just some examples of what, what was forbidden in grinding on the Sabbath. All right, if you have mud on your shoes, you are not allowed to scrape the mud off of your shoes or you are grinding. All right, you are not allowed to mix spices. If you have, like, a little bit of dirt, like, you can't scrape it off. Now, you can go like this, and you can go like, like that, because that's not grinding. But if you scrape it off directly, you have broken the Sabbath. Okay. All right, that's one of 31. There's, like, a whole list of all of these things. And everyone has brackets and all of the ways you can break them. Uh, so what has Jesus done? Jesus has, has ground mud to make a balm to heal a man's eyes and he did it on purpose right he could have just spoken which is permitted on the sabbath but no what did he do he he intentionally flagrantly broke the sabbath laws that these pharisees were so into intentionally and blatantly and purposefully. He's fully rebelling against the system and breaking their rules right in front of them. Why? Jesus is breaking these rules first because they need to be broken. They need to be broken. He is the light of the world. He is the word. He is truth incarnate, and He is the, the giver of living water. He is, he is the law. He is Torah embodied. And it, the true Jesus comes out to destroy the false laws of man. That's just what He does, and He has to do it because these laws are not from God. They are there to oppress. They are there to judge. They are there to constrain people. And maybe even more, they confuse people because they, there's, a, well, there's a bunch of things that God cares about. And instead, everyone is obsessed over all these other things that God actually couldn't care less about. And what are people, oh, they're putting all of their attention here on meaningless, stupid, worthless obedience and forgetting about all these other things that God actually cares about. Things that Jesus cares about. And the people have become so confused and their consciences have gotten so messed up that a Pharisee would get more upset about scraping the dirt off than about murdering someone who hasn't had a trial. All right, that's how deluded these laws have made them. And so Jesus has to stand up against those things uh, that the people might be free. That they might focus on these things once again. Right. Second reason. 
Jesus breaks these Sabbath rules because it shows who He is. It shows that He is. He is the ultimate law giver and maker. And He doesn't have to be subservient to man. He doesn't care about the things that they care about. And He's the one who actually fulfills Sabbath rest. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is the, the one who's come to heal on the Sabbath. He is the, the fulfillment. And so he's not going to cater to a bunch of people who misunderstand the Sabbath. He's going to, to convict them and, and break it. And finally, why does he break this Sabbath rule? He breaks it to, to show people their hearts. To show them that they care more about the laws of man than the laws of God. They care more about loving the things that they love than loving the one that he sent. Now, what do we do with this? I know none of you care about the Sabbath. Maybe even like you should care more, but you don't. All right. So what do we do with someone, uh, do we just condemn them that they're, they're idiots who have made their life all about worthless commandments? Good thing we don't do that. All right. In what way do we love our man-made rules more than the God-sent Savior? All right. We have to think about, okay, what rules does Jesus break intentionally as a way of convicting us and challenging us and shaping us. Right. An example here. I had a friend, and he was part of like a, in college, like an anti-human trafficking slave group. And he was one of the few Christians who were part, was part of that group. And he would witness and ask people in the group, like, so what, what do you do with Jesus? How, what do you think of him? And the person that he asked, what did they say? They said, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. Why? Because he did not directly condemn slavery clearly and adamantly. And if he didn't do that, he is not good in my book. Now, if we look closer, we realize Jesus condemned sin that would underlie all of the, the, everything that slavery would represent. He fought for freedom on a completely different level. But because he never said, no, you, may, you need to get rid of all of your slaves right now, Jesus was out. This rule that they have elevated, and they're, uh, they're testing Jesus, and he failed the test, and so they reject him. Now, we all have rules. Maybe you have rules of people-pleasing and social norms and proper behavior. And Jesus comes and he says, I, if, you, if you please man, you cannot be a servant of Christ. And we hear that and we say, I don't, I don't want Jesus who's going to turn me into a freak or a weirdo. No, I don't want that. And no, I want to keep my rules and my social norms. I want to be normal. And so, no, thank you. Jesus, get out of here. Others have rules of uh, success and acclaim and glory. 
and they live under those rules. And when Jesus comes to say that you should be a servant and a prisoner and a loser in the eyes of the world, to become first in the kingdom of God, what do we say? I, I don't want to lose Jesus. I don't want to lose. I don't want him. He doesn't follow the rules of, of glory and coolness that, that I subscribe to. All right, maybe it's the rules of love. You're convinced that God and that everyone needs to be completely accepting and kind and willing to receive anyone just as they are. And here comes Jesus who condemns people for their sin, who calls them to repentance. And you say, I, no, Jesus is not loving enough. I don't want him. Now, the irony is that someone, some other person could say, you know what, Jesus is too loving. He's not hateful enough. That I, I, want, I want someone who will get mad at the foreigner. And I want someone who will get mad at, at the outcast with me. And Jesus, Jesus is not angry enough. He is too loving. That's why I reject him. You know, someone who's saying, Jesus, you know, he's too feminine. He's emotional and he's compassionate, and he's, he weeps. Ugh, get out of here. And then you have the other people who say, you know, Jesus is too masculine. He's too oppressive and aggressive and makes whips and hits animals. And well, I, don't, I don't want that Jesus. All right, we all have all of these lists that we bring to, to Jesus and all these reasons to reject him. Now, some of you have used those things to reject Jesus outright. And you say, that, that is why I do not want Jesus. He doesn't follow my rules. Others of us are a little bit more secretive. And we say, I accept Jesus. But I'm going to change him so that he fits my rules. And say, well, no, Jesus, whatever, whatever you pick, you know, Jesus doesn't really care about how I spend my money, it, it, that's, he's not breaking, he's not going to make me break that rule. Or Jesus isn't going to make me uh, call someone a sinner. He would never make me break that rule. And we put all kinds of veils before, between us and the light of the world, and we do not see him for who he actually is in all of his glory that would convict us and change us and break us. Please be honest with who Jesus is. He breaks the rules. He breaks them so that we might be free, so that we might understand what the real rules are, so they might call us back to love God and love people and glorify God and not love the world and all of these things. What rule is Jesus breaking? that is hard for you. Really, think about it. And if you can't think of it now, think of it later. What things do you not like about Jesus and how does that reveal not a flaw in Jesus, but your idols, your man-made laws, the things that control you, the things that you love more than Jesus, 
the darkness and blindness in your soul that keeps you from seeing the light of the world. Now, the Pharisees, they cannot handle a Sabbath, Sabbath-breaking healer, and so they don't know what to do with him. They ask the man himself because they can't, they don't know who he is. So they say, who do you say he is? He's a prophet. Right, they don't like that either. And so what do they do? They go down this rabbit trail of trying to make, make it so that, gee, they don't have to believe in Jesus. Right? Faith and belief, they're not always very sincere. Sometimes you don't want to believe. And here we see the Pharisees try to get out from under it. Verse 18, the Jewish leaders did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who'd received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answer, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. All right, what was their rule that they were living by? Don't get kicked out of the synagogue. Keep your place in society. Don't, don't mess up your life. All right. But, all right, so the Pharisees, they went to the parents like they did with Jesus Right? They always want a, another higher authority. They always want better witnesses. They want more proof. Not because there's a lack of evidence, but because there's a lack of their own faithfulness to the evidence that, that's presented to them. All right. Beware. Beware of your own heart saying, but I want more evidence. More, more, more when you aren't dealing with the evidence that's right before you. We aren't dealing with the fact that here is a man who says he's the light of the world, who's opening people's eyes. Verse 24. So for a second time they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? It's the only thing that makes sense. They already know, they've already seen. Why on earth would they need to hear it again? The only, the only logical response is that the Pharisees should want to be his disciples because of who he is. This is a man who is spiritually sound in sight. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. All right, they think this is like a really good argument. What does this show? This just shows that they have no idea who Jesus is. They're admitting it. Jesus said the same thing to them last week. 
you don't know who I am. If you knew I was the light of the world, this would all make a lot of sense. You're, you're accusing yourself. And we have to, we have to realize, maybe you hate Jesus because you don't understand who he is. If you don't believe in Jesus, maybe you don't know Jesus. Or you've received this weird piece of him that you don't understand. Verse 30, the manhancer. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What is this guy saying? Isn't that complicated? This isn't this a great mystery. We see some one-to-one things here that make a lot of sense. This guy is doing miracles that have never been done before in the history of humanity. And does God just give miraculous powers of, of healing, doing one-of-a-kind healings to sinners? No, that doesn't make sense. And yet you've all, all you do with this guy is say he's a sinner? That doesn't work. And you're asking, where on earth could this guy come from who does miraculous signs in the name of God? The only thing that makes sense is that he's from God. Now, what does this guy have that they don't, that the Pharisees don't? In one sense, he has common sense. He has real honesty He has intellectual, like, integrity. He has spiritual sight. He has the eyes of his heart opened. He has spiritual eyes that can see the light of the world. And it's not that hard. It's not as crazy leap of faith. It, it makes sense. Now, the Pharisees, now humiliated, what do they choose to do? Verse 34, they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. And they say, You're a sinner born, born a sinner. Right? Where are we? We are right at the back, at the beginning of chapter 9. Who, who, who sinned? His parents or him? They don't want to see the work of God. They don't want to see the work of the light of the world. They want to get condemn people as sinners, and they want to be right, and they want to be good, and they want to be free from giving anything to this Jesus, the light of the world. They're not doing the work of God, and they certainly aren't going to let Jesus do it either. And just, just notice here, like, no amount of evidence is enough. No amount of logic holds. If the person, if the person it, it presents a perfect argument, then you know, we'll just attack the person. 
They did the same with Jesus. They called him a sinner and a, a demon. And they cast him out, and now they're casting out this innocent man without a trial and excommunicating him from fellowship in the name that he's a sinner. What they do with Jesus, they do with his followers. Do not be surprised if this is how you as a believer in Christ are treated. doesn't mean you didn't present a good argument. You didn't present your faith well. There's real blindness. Real unwillingness to see Jesus. We have to ask ourselves, am I, am I willing to see Jesus? Am I willing to receive him as he is? Are the eyes of my heart open that I can see him as he presents himself as the light of the world? And finally, we see Jesus' assessment of all of this. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? All right, this is a very vague question. Basically, do you believe in the coming Messiah that's promised in the book of Daniel? And he actually, he's talked about the Son of Man a bunch of times before. And usually people's response is, yeah, I wonder when he's going to show up. Or when he comes way back, way in the future, then I'll, I'll really be excited about him. What does this guy say? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He wants to know his name. Because this guy has read the signs. He's seeing himself, born blind, given sight. He knows that's a sign of the messianic era. And he's not asking, where, when, when is it going to happen? Maybe in the future. No, he's asking, I, I think he's here. What's his name? I know that he is here. I have experienced him. And Jesus answered, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Right. Just an apologetic note. For those who don't say that Jesus is God, this, would be, this is a very troublesome passage that this guy is worshiping Jesus. It's okay, because Jesus is God. All right. All right, so spiritual sight. What does spiritual sight give you the ability to do? First, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Believe in Jesus as the one who's going to come. Believe in Jesus as the chosen one who can bring us out of our sins and give us life. All right, that is spiritual sight. To see Jesus and see, yes, this is a Savior. This is something I need. This is the one who is going to come and cleanse me from my sins. And it's a second thing. The ability to see Jesus as someone who deserves to be worshipped. And those things go hand in hand. All right, there are too many people who call themselves followers of Jesus who want a savior, but do not want a king that has to be worshipped and obeyed. They don't want to spend their life worshiping someone who is now king. They want a savior who will let them do whatever they want. All right. That is not that is not who we worship. That is not the light of the world. 
These two things go hand in hand. Do you have both a Savior and a Lord and King whom you worship? A God who you worship with all of your life? We can still be blind by saying, yeah, yeah, just come and save me and serve me. That's still blindness as to who Jesus really is. He is the Lord and King worthy of our whole lives, worthy of worship. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard him saying these things and said, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Who is the greatest sinner? The one who claims to have no sin. Who knows the least? The one who claims to know everything. Who is the most blind? The person who doesn't even know that they are blind. For then they will never see because they don't need to see the light. And so, as long as the Pharisees deny their blindness, they will never see the light of the world. They will never have their eyes opened because they will never need it. I ask you, has Jesus given you sight? Has he changed your blindness to sin? repentance and seeing sin for what it is and hating it? Has he changed your, your heart towards God that you would in your blindness call God wrathful and vengeful to turning and seeing God as loving and merciful and gracious? Would you turn from seeing in your blindness denying your need for Jesus to falling down on your knees calling for him to save you and worshiping him? Or does Jesus cause you to dig in your heels and shake your fist at God and demand a different savior, a better one, one who serves you more? Is he blinding you or is he giving you eyes to see? May we see the signs and see Jesus and see the glory of the God that saved us, see the light of the world that loves us, see this one who seeks to free us from our slavery and bondage to all of the laws that we think are serving us. Let us see him that we may worship and believe in him. Amen. Father, we thank you for sending the light of the world. We admit that we would be the one, uh, we would be blind, that we, that all, uh, that we all start off blind, and we thank you that Jesus, the light of the world, has, has enlightened 
some of our eyes and that we can see him. Father, would you help us to behold him more? Would you give us a clearer vision to behold the glories of Christ, to see the world as broken and the laws of the world as, as weak and meaningless when they are? And Father, we ask that for those who are still blind, the Holy Spirit, you would, you would open their spiritual eyes of their heart that they would believe in Jesus and bow down and worship, that they would admit their rebellion and the foolishness of it and love Jesus, the light of the world, for all that he has done. Father, would you help us to believe and worship now in spirit and in truth, we pray in Christ's name.